Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Ruth Harris on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Dreyfus, Politics, Emotion, and the Scandal of the Century. If you're an American, as I am, you certainly remember the O.J. Simpson trial. I sat every evening before the TV watching rebroadcasts of the events of the day. You may have done that as well. It really captured the imagination of Americans, but it was not the trial of the century. The trial of the century was, as Ruth Harris points out, the trial of Alfred Dreyfus. Dreyfus was, of course, a French military officer of Alsatian Jewish descent who was accused of treason. And his trial and the result of the trial really began a kind of culture war in France and one that goes on to this day. On the one side, there were liberals who knew that Dreyfus was innocent and was being persecuted because he was Jewish. And on the other side, there were conservatives, some of them actually quite well-intentioned, who may not have believed that Dreyfus was actually guilty, but they felt they needed to protect the military establishment. And so without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Ruth. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Ruth Harris today about her new book, Dreyfus, Politics, Emotion, and the Scandal of the Century. I have read this book, and uh, you may think this is funny, Ruth, but uh, it it brought the O.J. Simpson trial to mind to me, because here here in America, we call that the trial of the century, but I was convinced by your book that, uh, in fact, the trial of the century began in the last century and involved uh, Alfred Dreyfus. I'm I'm, I'm sure that many of our listeners, uh, who are very well educated, I should say, uh, know a little bit about the Dreyfus affair, but if you read this book, the book by Ruth Harris, whom we're speaking with today, you will learn a lot more about it. Uh, It's a really wonderful book, and I encourage you to go out and pick it up. So, Ruth, why don't you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born in Israel um, and educated in America. I left America when I was 20 years old and came to study in Oxford. I had no intention of staying. I spent a long time here. I I basically missed the the Reagan years and instead uh, (laughs) experienced the Thatcher years. Uh I returned um, 28 to America and uh, taught for a few years in the States, but missed Europe so much that in a few years later I went back, and I was fortunate enough to get this job at Oxford Mm -hmm. that I've had now for 20 years. Wow. Uh-huh. And where did you do your Ph.D. work, if you don't mind my asking? I did my Ph.D. work here at, at Oxford, oh, so in many ways I'm an Oxford product. I see. And I'm now at the stage of my life where I've now lived on this side of the Atlantic longer than I lived in America. Mm. And my colleagues in England are always so impressed that I've managed to retain my American accent. <laughs> I, was, I was actually born in a... In the Midwest here in, in, in the United States, and I have lost my Midwestern accent even though I'm back. So I'm, my, my mother's turning over in her grave. I don't have a drawl anymore. So uh, in any event, tell us how uh, you came to write this book about Dreyfus. I mean, one of the questions I want to ask you uh, is about the challenges of writing a book about 
someone and something that has been the subject of many, many, uh, many books. So anyway, why don't you tell us how you started the project? Well, it's very interesting. Um, I think that the project was always in my mind. Uh, I learned about the Dreyfus Affair when I was an early adolescent, I'd say 11, 12, but growing up in suburban Philadelphia in the 1960s. And the teachers at school talked about it in terms of the of the whole problem of rational idealism in politics. And it, it was spoken about almost in the same breath. What the Dreyfusars did for Dreyfus is what you know, anti-Vietnam protesters, civil rights protesters were doing at the moment in America. But at the same time, I was going to Hebrew school. And we heard about the Dreyfus Affair there as well. And at Hebrew school, they had a very different take on the Dreyfus Affair. <laughs> and that was all about the perils of assimilation, the need for Zionism, how even in a country like France, which was the cradle of Republican ideals and of the revolution, that such an outburst of anti-Semitism could take place. I mean, what we learned about the Dreyfus Affair is that that was where people like Theodore Herzl had been galvanized into Zionism. Mm-hmm. So those were the two poles of my experience of the affair from a very early age. And then um, I went back to the affair in the course of writing a large book on the miracles and apparitions of Lourdes. Now, nothing could have been further from the affair. This was about Catholicism in the 19th century. It was about Marianism in the 19th century. It was about healing in the 19th century. But what was so interesting about that study was that Many of those people were very, very anti-Dreyfusar and intensely anti-Semitic. And as I came out of that project, I, I began to think that it was time to reassess the affair and to think about its place not only in French history, but also in world history. Mm-hmm. And that's when I began to write about it. Mm-hmm. But the actual writing of the book and distinguishing myself from the thousand other articles and books that had been written about the affair actually took rather a more long time. I mean, what I discovered, to my astonishment, when I went into the archives, was that um, there were many things that nobody had ever read mm-hmm. or no one had ever cited. And I began to realize that actually there was an enormous treasure trove of documents that no one had ever thought pertinent to the affair. Mm -hmm. And that was where I began to realize that I had something really new to say. I can offer nothing new to the spy story. I can offer nothing new to the diplomatic story or to the story of military intrigue. But what I could do is realize uh, through the examination of literally tens of thousands of letters, no, I'm not sure how many thousands, but many several thousands, about the relationships that were forged and the kinds of politics that emerged because of the affair. Mm -hmm. And what I was interested in was what happened to people during a cause celebre? What what distinguished a cause celebre from other forms of politics? What was, what made the politics of commitment so different? And what I discovered as I began to read these letters and everything else that I looked at was that um, people really hoped that through this humanitarian crusade that they could transform themselves, transform the world, and recreate new networks and a new kind of politics. Mm -hmm. And I actually do believe that although I don't believe this in any essential way, but the fact that I was a woman and not somebody interested in particularly military or diplomatic intrigue um, meant that I became very interested in the people. Mm -hmm. And that's why, during the course of the writing, I was able to look into things that people had never really considered. I mean, everyone knew, for example, that uh, much of the informal network surrounding the affair took place amongst the salonier, the salon keepers, the women who choreographed it from behind the scenes. But most traditional histories of the affair, what they had looked at are, you know, the Académie Française, the Institut Français, the Université. They were interested in institutional networks. And strangely enough, these women who were really at the center of what happened had never really been carefully examined, nor had their writings to other Dreyfusards been carefully examined or analyzed. And that's just one example of many um, that I was interested in, in uncovering. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lesson in there for everyone thinking about uh, picking up a topic that they think is well worked over. I I just read a um, biography um, by one of your um, British colleagues uh, of Trotsky, and um, I can tell you he found a lot of new stuff. 
Uh, yeah. yeah, he has. So uh, you sh- no, no topic is ever closed. I think that's the way I'd put it. Well, I, I think that what happens is that we always come to the documents and the archives with these different perspectives. And as our world changes, our view of the past yeah. changes. But what I did find extraordinary was that, for example, there were many things that were quoted again and again. And I found, for example, that Alfred Dreyfus's brother, Matthew Dreyfus, um, part of the reason why the same letters were quoted again and again was simply because he had rubbish handwriting. <laughs> and there are a series of letters in the Bibliothèque Nationale that are dactylographed, you know, they're typed with carbon. And those are the letters that tended to be uh, most readily um, cited, and I understand why. But actually, when I had trouble with reading these letters, I actually got French friends to help me, and they, they said at moments it almost made them cry, because... These letters are at the height of the epistolary mode. There are very few telephones yet in Paris. And they're writing furiously. Often they're writing three times a day to people. It's over three hours a day. This is their only way of communication. So it's an incredible treasure trove. But you also have to have tremendous patience and be willing to listen to what people are saying. And one of the, the other things, the major discoveries that I made was that we tend to think of the affair as marking out very strong boundaries between the two Frances, the left and the right. And what I discovered is that actually at the beginning, many people didn't know which side they would be on. Mm-hmm. And in fact, instead of this tremendous cleavage between anti-intellectuals and intellectuals, at the outset, one of the reasons um, that people were so disturbed was that old, treasured friends and colleagues who had often agreed or been interested in the same things, whether that be experimental psychology, evolution, the study of the occult, um, any number of things, um, sociology, psychology, they found that people that they thought would be on their side had chosen the other side. Hmm. And that it was precisely because of these strong bonds, and as well as the rage that people experienced when they discovered that people that should, they felt should have been with them were actually had decided to be against them, that was in part responsible for the passion that the affair aroused. Mm. And Freud has a term for this. It's called the narcissism of marginal difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that nobody had ever seen before. Left or right, they were both all interested in science. Mm -hmm. They were all interested in evolutionary theory. Many of them were interested in racial theory. They shared many of the same literary debates, Mm -hmm. but they fell on different sides because the moral implications of those things that they were arguing about really came into focus during the affair, Mm -hmm. and some of them chose one side and some of them chose the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, no, it sounds like you found a lot. Also, I want to say that you just gave a... uh, Strong plug for the continued relevance of paleography, something yes. close to my heart as a sort of quasi-medievalist and early modernist. I took paleography classes, and I'm glad I did. <laughs> no, I think that we, we uh, I mean, we're having a big uh, problem in Britain about paleography right now because the only professor of paleography is having trouble because we're having terrible cutbacks. And, of course, this whole business of really being able to to deal with manuscripts and to, to sit with them, to read, for example, you know, the other hundreds of letters that were written to Lucy Dreyfus, Alpha Dreyfus's wife. I mean, they were from so-called what they call inconnu, people who are unknown to her. And mm-hmm. what is interesting there, and what's, what's revealed, is that these women, were, and they were largely women, um, spoke to her in in a, in a religious idiom, hmm. and that this whole idea that Dreyfus saw were all virulently anti-clerical, none of it. It's not true. There's a whole wealth of, of evidence now that I've, I've revealed in the book to show that actually they regarded um, Dreyfus as a kind of Christ. We have um, women writing to Lucy Dreyfus asking for a photograph of, of Dreyfus so they can put him next to their crucifix on mm. their mantelpiece. Mm. And we have many of the women writing to her as a Mater Dolorosa. Hmm. As the, as you know, the the Virgin. Um, some of them admire her as, as what they consider to be a virtuous Jewess. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see her as no different from sort of like Rebecca in the, in the Ivanhoe story, mm-hmm. and they admire her for her fortitude in the face of these tremendous odds. And that's another part of the book that I've really tried to reveal is that. The political debate has often overshadowed the importance, the continued importance of religion to this political debate, whether that be in a Christian idiom, 
a Catholic idiom, a Protestant idiom, or a Jewish idiom. And that these, these ideas of martyrology were very important to both left and right. And it was another thing that they really shared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on the topic of religion, let's um, tell the story just a little bit to fill in the listeners. Uh, who exactly was Alfred Dreyfus and where did he come from? Actually, I'm quite interested in this Alsatian-Jewish connection. Well, uh, he came from a, fam- a large family. His father was a peddler, a Yiddish-speaking peddler, um, who made it in the world of um, textile manufacturing. They grew up in Mulhouse, and his um, brother and he, Matthew Dreyfus and he, were the youngest of this large family, and they're the only children who really were completely, you know, educated in a French way. Uh, The other children spoke the German dialects of the the, the factories that they managed, um, which just goes to show that in this border region, in Alsace, it was extremely, um, extremely... um, What was interesting about the people who live in Alsace is they were sentimentally French, but often Germanic. Mm that language did not define their, their vision of their own national identity. Mm-hmm. And when France is cut away from, uh, when, when Alsace is cut away from Germany during the Great War of 1870-71, for people like Alfred Dreyfus and his family, this was a complete and utter tragedy. They associated France with liberation, they associated France with the emancipation of Jewry, and of course their family almost immediately opts for French patriotity. And Alfred Dreyfus makes his way up in the army, Precisely because he wants to take revenge against the Germans by um, becoming the best officer he can and prosecuting the war the next time. Mm-hmm. So he's going to become he's going to become more French than the French. In, uh, to, yes, to, yes, to, to spite the Germans. Yeah, absolutely. And these these Alsatians who opt for French patriotity are super patriots. But at the same time. For the French of the so-called interior, they're often the, one, the first ones to be suspected. Within the uh, the intelligence, uh, the, the, the burgeoning, though still very amateurish intelligence world, the Alsatians are often seen as potential spies. People go across the border to visit their families who are probably maybe working for the Germans. And one of the reasons that um, suspicion falls on, on Alfred Dreyfus is because he still speaks French with a slightly Germanic accent. Mm. But flawless French, though, native French. It's amazing French, and um, also grammatically perfect. And the thing about Alfred Dreyfus is that he's he's extremely brilliant. And that is also one of the reasons why he gets into trouble. I mean, before the French army is famous for its its sort of nepotistic uh, uh, policy of promotion. But after 1870-71, they tried to bring in many meritocratic reforms, and Alfred Dreyfus he goes through these meritocratic exams, and because he's so brilliant, he comes out ninth in his whole class mm-hmm. in the École Supérieure de Guerre. Mm-hmm. What's amazing is he would have graduated second if it wasn't for an anti-Semitic general on the, the deciding jury who gives him a zero. And it's certainly not true that Alfred Dreyfus lays down and takes it. He goes to the head of the École Supérieure de Guerre, and he complains, mm-hmm. and he says... That you know, he, he why was he and the other Jewish officer given a zero in their oral examination? And they go and they speak to this man, this general, and the general says, because we do not want Jews on the general staff. Mm-hmm. So it explains so much about this this ascendant Jewish community. They knew very well that in order to succeed, they had to do absolutely splendidly on these exams, mm-hmm. and he did. And he manages to get in because these the stagiaires, there's a group of 12 of them who are picked to go into the general staff to be trained. And it's precisely because of his brilliance and also because of his wealth. He, he really is an heir to a large fortune through his father and then subsequently through his wife, who's the daughter of diamond merchants. And there are many people in the army who are aristocratic Catholic um, uh, upbringing who are very, very envious of this brilliant and very rich young Jewish Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is one of the first moments in, I guess, what I'd call bureaucratic meritocracy then. I know that in the United States, and certainly in the country that I spent most time studying, Russia, uh, in the mm. 1870s, there was none of this. Uh, it was a, there was a, I was going to say it was a glass ceiling, but actually it wasn't glass at all. It was just, a, I don't know, a wooden ceiling. 
In other words, there was no meritocracy. You no, know, there was no way you could. There's no way that you could uh, could enter the. They could be in the Russian army, and they were in the Russian army, but there's no way they could actually enter the officer corps. So exactly. Uh, yeah, at that time, had they opened the officer corps to? Uh, I guess they had opened it to Jews. Had they opened it to all kinds of other people? They had uh, ostensibly opened it to everyone because this is what what we what's so hard to understand, which is that France is the only republic, major republic in a country still with monarchies uh-huh. and courts. Mm-hmm. And that's it's the, this basic fact that it's hard to really realize that for Jews, this is why the affair is so it's so devastating. Mm-hmm. It's precisely because France is a republic. Mm-hmm. France makes the promise of emancipation. It makes the egalitarian promise, and it makes the meritocratic one. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting, and what I try to do is to, to, to show that on one hand, France's trajectory, because it's republican, is unique. But at the same time, we tend to think of anti-Semitism as still belonging to the, quote, authoritarian lands of the East, whether that be Russia, mm-hmm. the Czech lands, or um, other other parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And we have, at around the same time as the Dreyfus case, the great blood libel accusations, mm-hmm. um, which are reinvented from you know the Middle Ages, where Jews are accused of, of kidnapping Christian children and bleeding them for masses, to make masses. Right. Well, of course, the Dreyfus affair is not that, but it, it is. It, it is would be wrong to not see it as part of this general anti-Semitic um, reaction at, at the end of the 19th century, after the 1880s, where pretty much everywhere there is an upsurge in, in anti-Semitism throughout Europe. And sorry, go ahead. Do you think it's a result of the workings of meritocracy, though? Because we can kind of see similar processes in other places, usually in the first or second generation of meritocracy. It's one thing for them, whoever they are, to speak like us and to live in our cities. But it's another thing for them to marry our daughters and sons, because it seems to me that the Dreyfuses were coming close to they, they were assimilating to a certain class and in a certain place. Well, I think that they weren't, they still weren't marrying out. Yeah, no, it was still a very endogamous world, but you're quite right. As you said, it was one thing to aspire, but it's another thing to take those positions that, that other people feel belong to, quote, mm-hmm. the French, whether that be in the universities, whether it be in the army, mm-hmm. anything to do with state service. Which is seen as, you know, is precisely these areas that Jews emerge because of the meritocratic examination system. But it's precisely those areas which are seen as central to the notion of French civilization and government, mm-hmm. where the old guard think they should not be. Mm-hmm. They should not get this foothold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And during the Republic, it's, it's certainly true that there are prominent Jews, in particularly Jews and Protestants, all of whom become Dreyfusard, who emerge very, very strongly in the world of the universities and in the world of the high civil service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's precisely this that people, this is one of the reasons why people become anti-Dreyfusard. Mm-hmm. So how did uh, Alfred Dreyfus get in trouble? He gets in trouble simply because a document, a memorandum, which is called the Baudreau, is discovered, torn up, in the by cleaning lady in the German embassy. The cleaning lady is a, a French spy in the German midst. She brings this stuff back to the uh, statistical bureau, which is a euphemism for the intelligence service inside um, the army, and they put it together. And um, it has a slight, the handwriting has a slight resemblance to Dreyfus's, but it isn't Dreyfus's. It belongs to another man, um, a most caricatural fantasy actor villain named Esterhazy. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very soon. It's by 1896 that, it, that the second hero of the affair, Georges Picard, has discovered that, in fact, he is the real culprit mm-hmm. and that um, Dreyfus has been sent away wrongly to, to languish on Devil's Island. Mm-hmm. And he tries to bring this Picard to his superiors, and they refuse to accept the evidence. Mm-hmm. I see. So, he, but it's the military that actually prosecutes the case, and it, it goes very quickly, doesn't it? I mean, they bring in some handwriting experts or something, and right, the first court martial. Yeah, he's 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 it's done within a few weeks. 
Um, there is disagreements among the, the, the handwriting experts, but it's not that that actually condemns him. What condemns him is there's, they're not certain he will actually be condemned. So illegally, they transmit um, a dossier which describes a man who's called the scoundrel D., uh-huh. And in fact, this D has nothing to do with Dreyfus, and this convinces the 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 military man on the court martial that Dreyfus is indeed the culprit. So on every level, it's illegal. I mean, it's illegal. The the, the Dreyfus's defense team don't know anything about it. Dreyfus doesn't know anything about these documents, and also the D it happens to be some um, a map maker who. Uh, Dubois, another spy. It, it, it has nothing to do with Dreyfus. He's condemned on this flimsy evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, is that, um, how best to put this, uh, Dreyfus acts according to, I guess what I'd call French lights, I don't know about American lights, but he acts rather oddly when he is confronted with these accusations uh, and then when he's asked to defend himself. He doesn't do himself any favors, let's put it that way. How would you mean? In, uh, what I mean is, is that he, he uh, you describe him in the book as being, uh, I don't know what the right adjective would be, a little bit distant, aloof, almost superior. He's very technical. Um, he, yeah. he doesn't seem to get, um, I don't know, the word that comes to mind, you'll have to pardon me, is pissed off. He, doesn't, he does not, um, he does not uh, rise to great uh, dudgeon and, 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 and throw a fit. Uh, well, what I think is interesting is that he, he, all of what you say is true. He's perceived as... as um, he has a he has a funny voice, something high pitched and unsympathetic about his voice. He is um, very uh, precise. He and relatively unemotional, and he is, as you say, very technocratic in his self presentation. Um, and I think that it. it, it it all falls falsely. He does not appear as an innocent man, and especially in France, where values, such a value is placed on eloquence and um, passion. This precise, clear, and unemotional delivery is seen as evidence of his probable du- duplicity. Mm-hmm. He is a man who hates histrionics, and he is immensely stoical, and his, and also deeply shy, mm-hmm. and his reserve is interpreted as uh, haughtiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So- and so the, all of these kinds of character traits, which are once again come up, the second, second court-martial, when it comes back in 1899, are all held against him. He is not seen as someone that people can easily identify with. And what is interesting is that when the campaign is once again restarted, I mean, he's sent a, he's condemned in the very beginning of 1895 and degraded. He's sent away to Devil's Island. And the campaign only really gets going in, in a mass form at the end of 1897 and the beginning of 1898 with Zola's great intervention. It's, in a sense, almost easy to um, to believe in him, to support him, because he is a symbol. Mm-hmm. He is not human. You know, he is mm-hmm. far away. He's in Devil's Island. And the whole business is taken up by all these campaigners, not by Dreyfus himself. Mm-hmm. Now, when the uh, army, well, I'll put it in, in delicate terms, framed him... Yeah, they do uh, what, frame him. Yes. What... Um, what did they expect would happen? I mean, did they simply expect this would just go away, that no one would raise a hand? They, they did, and I also think they expected him to die. Huh. And I think that that is one of the most important features of what happens to him. I mean, what, you cannot um, condemn someone to death for the crime of treason during peacetime. So he is not condemned to death. But he's expected to go to New Caledonia, and they rush through new legislation so that there's special circumstances set up for him, and he's sent to Devil's Island. And the conditions on Devil's Island are so atrocious, so horrendous. Um, he is ultimately, to quote, prevent his escape, uh, hidden behind a, a palisade so he can't even see the sea. He sees only the sky above him. He's manacled at night. He eats rancid food. He loses the ability to speak because his guards aren't able to talk to him. That's uh, forbidden. 
and he almost loses his mind mm-hmm. in 1896, and he becomes extremely emaciated, malnourished, and very, very ill indeed. So I do think that they thought he would perish, and yes, no one would raise a hand. And so how did the uh, campaign to exonerate him get started? Well, without his family, it was unimaginable. They knew everything, and not for a moment does anyone in the large an extended Dreyfus clan believed that he could have done this terrible, treasonous act. No one believed it. And it's his wife, above all, who in the early days literally keeps him from committing suicide. In fact, she's later portrayed as a very, very, very virtuous Victorian woman who wears, and she does, she wears witness weeds the whole time he's away. She takes her children out of school to save them the dishonor, so they never know, they claim never to know what happened to their father. They only know that he's away. Um, and she is responsible for keeping him from suicide. There's no doubt about that. He's strong. And it's also his, his brother, Mathieu, who, who basically leaves his job and leaves the, the, the family firm and who comes to Paris and who knocks on every door. And little by little, they get a circle of early Dreyfusard, people who just find that the evidence won't add up. And in the end, um, finally, the case really, truly breaks when with Zola's intervention, mm-hmm. when he writes the famous Jacques. Jacques, yes. So there's also an interesting moment here in terms of the history of uh, media, something I just finished a book about, so I uh, wanted to talk about it. Uh, th- this was uh, kind of the first year of the mass circulation. By mass, I mean hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, circulation of, um, of periodicals, of, of newspapers. That, that must have been important. It's important from the very beginning. It's important. Um, I mean, the the, I, I, the some of the illustrated daily, the illustrated newspapers sell a million copies. Wow. Yeah. So that's it's extraordinary, and um, yes, and it's very much presented in in the melodramatic mode with spectacular. Uh, but what is interesting is about Zola is that he's, of course, the great best-selling novelist, yeah. and no one knows better how to do a publicity campaign yeah. than Zola. He's right off the campaign for his novel Paris, Paris, and um, he he's, he writes his early interventions in Le Figaro, and the newspaper begins to lose subscriptions. And uh-huh. because of that, he has to leave Le Figaro, and he begins to uh, circulate pamphlets, but pamphlets are too expensive. And it's at that juncture that he finally decides to publish Jacques in L'Aurore, a new newspaper, relatively new newspaper. And on the day of the, of the selling, they hawk it in the streets by singing out the actual words in France, you know, Jacques, and it goes on and on. It's a wonderful rhetorical thing. Jacques, 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 I accuse the army, I accuse this one, I accuse that one. And 300,000 copies are printed in a day and, and sold. Um, and yes, this is a major publicity coup. There's no doubt about it. um, In the media world, they would call that really terrific penetration of the market. I mean, that would be the equivalent of selling tens of millions of copies in the United States. It is an extraordinary thing that happens. It truly is. Nothing sells like that anymore. I used to work in print publishing. And, uh, you know, there there are no novels that that have that kind of penetration. So, in any event, why does Zola um, decide to pick this up? He doesn't have any connection with... Uh, with with uh, the Dreyfus family, he's not he's not Jewish himself. He no. Why does he do this? Well, this is what's so interesting. He doesn't do it the first time around. He's asked, and he's he's quite. He decides he doesn't want to get involved, and then um, he, he does it. He very explicitly because he is intrigued. As the story comes out, he's he's invited to the home of an Alsatian senator, Short Kester, who's one of uh, Dreyfus's early advocates, and there he discovers that he he, he finds the intrigue of the the villain Esther Hazy, um, the, the virtuous senator Short Kester fighting against the odds. These iniquitous figures in the army, and he he actually writes to his wife. Um, he knows it's the re- it, it, it's a real thing, but he actually writes at the same time to his wife Alexandrine. I'm writing the most beautiful page of my life. <laughs> so he 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 knows that he is he he's intrigued with it because of its novelistic power. Yeah. Well. 
And at the same time, this is what, again, I try to draw out very much in the book and what I have new to say, is that what people think is that Zola was an unalloyed hero and a wonderful boon for the Dreyfusar. But actually, it was a very, very, very ambiguous champion. Zola was called the pornographer, the pornographe. He was famous for his novels um, that were obsessed with um, sexuality, um, hereditary and degeneration. He was considered um, somebody who had uh, was obsessed with everything that was low and dark. And in fact, while he rallied the Dreyfusar in his campaign against anti-Semitism and against um, military authoritarianism, at the same time, he also helped to rally the anti-Dreyfusar because they immediately assumed that Zola, who had besmirched French literature with his pornography, was now besmirching France with his advocacy of Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. So he was the classic. So it's actually a much more complicated picture than people realize. Yeah, I was going to say. So he was kind of the classic uh, polarizing figure, to use a cliche. Very polarizing yes, figure. Exactly. So um, the, the one of the fascinating things in the book, and one of the things I did not know, was the uh, extent to which the Dreyfusar were um, were organized. That they were. Um, it was. There was a social aspect to what they did. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, the, the fact is, is that they, they, they're, on the top levels of the campaign, there were people who already knew one another. But one of the best things about this is that they start to meet new friends and make a new world through the campaign. Um, and there was, and this is, this is one of the things that happens that they begin to actually meet people that they've never met. I mean, they, they circulate, um, they're great politicians who now meet men of letters, and they meet academics who are now very involved in the Dreyfusar campaign, and increasingly, they come into contact with socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the famous Jean Jaurès, mm-hmm. uh, typically in France, prior to the Dreyfus affair, socialists were also very anti-Semitic because one of the ways that you condemned capitalists was by calling them Jews. Mm-hmm. And it's he, you know, Jaurès uh, actually loses his seat in 1898, and he, then he devotes himself to the Dreyfusar cause, and he does this um, by trying to convince socialists that anti-Semitism is not the way for socialism, that instead anti-Semitism is becoming attached to nationalism, that it's a dangerous enemy of the working classes, and what you have is you have all kinds of socialists meeting. Anarchists meeting people in the Dreyfusar camp who are wealthy, highly educated, and there's a real hope amongst the Dreyfusar that the so-called head and the so-called hand of, of France will now be united in this Dreyfusar struggle. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, uh, if I'm not incorrect, the uh, word intellectuals is coined about this time to describe these people. Is that is that right? Yes, it's quite, people use it in the early 1890s, but what happens is it's during the affair that it's used as a term of abuse uh, against the Dreyfusar, meaning that they're so cerebral, bespeckled, puny, lacking in virility. But it's actually a term which they embrace. Uh-huh. They embrace the insult just the way the Impressionists embraced the insult that they were painting on the impressions, that they were bad painters by saying, yes, it's precisely what we're doing. We're painting light. And yes, this term emerges in this period. Uh I see. That's very interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about Jews in France for just a second. It's a bit of a digression, but there was a fact in the book that uh, really surprised me. In fact, it surprised me so much. I talked to my wife last night about it. She's on a business trip in Texas. Uh, Uh That there were 70,000 Jews in France in roughly... uh, 1900, is that right? About 70,000? Yeah. About That's an incredibly 100. small number compared exactly. to the, the general population, which was, what, 30 million or something? I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, well, most French people wouldn't even have ever met a Jew at that, exactly. at that rate. They were an and idea, not a thing. It's an extraordinary thing. It's an extraordinary fact, isn't it? I yes, mean, it is. It, yeah, I, I, mean, was, I was amazed. There are many more Jews in Germany. There are many more Jews in Austria-Hungary. Yeah. And there are many more Jews in Russia. Yeah. And I think that it's very interesting to see that anti-Semitism has no direct relationship to the number of Jews in any particular community. Yeah, no, it is. It, well, the funny thing is, is that anybody who, well, I don't know about anybody, but those of us who study Russian history know that uh, before Peter the Great's time, roughly, or perhaps even before around 1800, Jews were not allowed in the territory of Muscovy or old Russia at all. Exactly. Yet there was quite a discourse about Jews. 
Absolutely. There there weren't any Jews, but they talked about them a lot. Yes, there's no doubt about it. And and yet, this is what's so interesting and tricky about the situation of Jews in, in, in France, is that on the one hand... They felt themselves very privileged. They, you know, they looked further east and they saw the restrictions on Jews and the least emancipation of Jews further east and saw themselves as very privileged. But on the other hand, they felt the need to um, assimilate and acculturate themselves and also to uh, embrace French values so completely. And they were always very much on the defensive mm-hmm. that if they didn't prove their Frenchness constantly, that they would not be accepted in French culture. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually, Albert Dreyfus's life history is, prototy- is, is only a prototype of that. I mean, here is the ultimate super patriot, and yet, even though he wants to serve France absolutely, he gets a zero on his oral examination because somebody just decides that they don't want him. They don't want Jews in the general staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's very interesting. And he does remind me a little bit of, again, I just read this biography of Trotsky. Trotsky was a very highly assimilated, what we would call a Ukrainian um, Jew, but again, he perfectly assimilated and, and uh, even more so than Dreyfus, I think. And, uh, yeah. But throughout his life, he kept his Judaism with him in the sense that it kept being foisted upon him. You know, he kept yeah. he kept saying, "I'm not really. Don't worry. I'm, I don't really. I'm, I'm not one of those people." And uh, people kept telling him that he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Dreyfus was very assimilated, wasn't he? Was he? Uh, did he? Did he, he go was, to his, synagogue? He was, he, yeah, I'm, he he he. But he was still very much living within a Jewish family life. His wife was a practicing Jewess, mm-hmm. but he was not. And he never sought to defend himself as an Israelite, as, as a Jew. Yeah. He, he sought to defend himself as a Frenchman. And of course, it's a, it's a very, you know, if you read the book, you see that throughout the campaign, there's just so many difficulties about how to position themselves tactically vis-a-vis this question. Yeah. I mean, do you go for the universal, which is, you know, an, an injustice has been done, or do you defend your, also do you try to say that also you're, you're being accused because you are a Jew, which is, and to stress that. Uh-huh. And actually, very few days stress the anti-Semitism. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's amazing that even in the course of that whole campaign, Zola was one of the few. There was another named Bernard Lazare. But many others wanted simply to keep it on the, the plane of a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, yeah. And not actually explore the anti-Semitism. I was wondering, because, you know, there, there are parts of your book in which the, the discussion of anti-Semitism as a kind of motivating factor is, is um, well, it falls into the background. And I was wondering, to what extent did it become something... Uh, more general than about a, a kind of um, about a kind of about anti-Semitism. Was, was it was it more than that? It is definitely more yeah. than that. I, mean, I don't think that Dreyfus. This would have happened to Dreyfus if he hadn't been a Jew. I really don't. Um, I I believe that there are there are many contributing factors to his to, to the frame up, but I I think that the Jewish one is a significant one. But as the affair. Um, progresses. There are so many complications. People use it for whatever are their, their particular preoccupations. I mean, on the right, you have somebody like the nationalist leader, Derouled, who is anti-Dreyfusar because he sees the Dreyfusar as wanting to attack the army. And as in, in his view, the army is sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. The army must be absolutely right. But he personally is not very anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he's harassed by his anti-Dreyfusar followers who keep on saying to him, you are far too generous. Why don't you come out with a stronger anti-Semitic stance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's really rather complicated. And then there are other Dreyfusar, anti-Dreyfusar who are against race theory and who don't believe in that there is such a thing as, as a Semitic race. Mm-hmm. But they still decide to go for... Um, and then to do for the our position because they believe in tradition and they believe in the grandeur of the army. But it's not because they're particularly anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean, we could go on and on about how actually Jews themselves, it had a very uh, powerful impact on the Jewish um, community. You mentioned Herzl uh, in, in Europe largely, but I did want to turn to the other side. I think it's a side, and you say this in the book, and I think that's right, that it's been kind of neglected. People haven't spent a lot of time trying to understand exactly what what the, I guess I might Put it as the the principled stance, if there is such a thing, of the anti-Dreyfusard, of the people that felt that um, 
there was something worth defending here. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what motivated them. Well, I think it's a very important problem. I, 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 uh, somebody criticized me recently in a, in, one, in a national paper. They liked the book very much, but they said they thought I was too easy on the anti dreyfusard I certainly don't want to be easy on them. Um, but I, I find it I think it's, it's incumbent upon the historian to try to understand why was it that given that the evidence piled up for Dreyfus's innocence, why was it that they kept on trying to keep him in Devil's Island? Um, to say that they're just devils or bad yeah, people that really isn't much of an historical explanation. Yeah. No, I think that ab- oh. above all, um, it is about this notion of military glory, grandeur, especially in a post-1870-71 world where France is experiencing relative um, international decline vis-a-vis both um, England and Germany and even America to some extent by this period. And um, they see the Republic as not necessarily the best um, regime for France. After all, it's not necessarily a stable regime. Throughout the 19th century, the regimes have changed rapidly in succession between 20 and 30 years through most of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Um, But what they see is that the army is the school of the nation. That is a continuity from the revolution right through. Mm -hmm. And this this defense of Dreyfus is seen as a defense of um, as something brought in to destabilize that one force of continuity mm-hmm. and nationhood, and they are fearful. And there's, and I think that what I was trying to explain is that most people want to want to draw a direct line from the right of the end of the 19th century to the fascism of the interwar period. Some of the people are the same. You know, we have some of the same characters still um, spewing forth their anti-Semitic horrors in the 1930s. But actually, you cannot read back fascism into the 1890s. There are its own world, and it has its own preoccupations. And many of these preoccupations are fear of decline, um, fear of social disintegration and degeneration, fear of a wealth of new ideas that are seen as undermining the, the moral fabric of society. Many of these, not many, but several of these important anti-Dreyfusar are reconverted Catholics, even though they, they're not very Christian in their spirituality, but they, they, they re-embrace Catholicism because they want to, they see that as important to re-embracing something that is firm, enduring, and long-lasting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting moment. I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to compliment you on one thing that is related to this point, and that is that there's a description of the second trial in which you have a little meditation about what the judges were thinking as they listened to the evidence. And one of the points you make, and I was hoping you could talk about it a little bit, is it wasn't particularly irrational for them to think that Dreyfus was guilty, given what yeah. they heard. Well, what I think is. It's hard again for us to understand is that within the army, there's such an emphasis placed on notions of character, um, an almost old military chivalry code. And what is important to realize is that many honest military men could not believe that their colleagues were involved in this cover-up. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and um, and it, and it is it is so against their vision of the world and their vision of integrity. They they believe their colleagues and have to think of Picard, the one who discovers that Esterhazy is the real culprit, as a renegade, mm-hmm. as a bad man. And yeah. when he is when he is brought up in the court martial, the second court martial where Dreyfus is condemned again, which a lot of people don't realize. Dreyfus comes back from Devil's Island and he's condemned again. Um, Picard is suspended from the army and he's not even appearing in uniform. Why would military judges um, believe a man like that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's, I thought it was an extraordinarily uh, 
thought-provoking part of the book because I began to see things from their perspective, and I thought, you know, they were ve- they were they were very confused because very. they were hearing all kinds of different things. And in the end, they had, they simply had to decide who they wanted to believe, and they believed their own, I guess. Uh, very much, they believed their own. Yeah, I mean, even you know, against an overwhelming amount of evidence that they, that in fact Dreyfus was uh, innocent, they they still. You know, I, I found myself <laughs> sympathetic is not really the right word for it, but I I could recognize their, more comprehending. Yes, I, I could understand what 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 really had happened there. So um, they convict him for a second time, uh, but then he is eventually um, pardoned. How does that happen? Well, what happens is, is that within ten days he's pardoned because everyone thinks he's going to die. Uh-huh. He comes back so diminished from Devil's Island. He can't eat anything except a fruit, bit of uh, uh, milk and and dry biscuits. And um, his brother asks for the pardon because he is convinced that he will die and he wants to be able to die with his wife and his children. Mm-hmm. And this brings tremendous tension within the Dreyfusar camp because they see it, many of the Dreyfusar see it as conceding. Um, and uh, there's just a tr- terrible fight. And uh, many of those who, who argue in favor of the pardon are Jewish, this Matur and other Jewish Dreyfusar, and many ultimately, it's not that anyone opposes the pardon absolutely, it's just that what they oppose is later on Alfred Dreyfus's and Dreyfus's reluctance to re to re reinitiate the campaign. Mm-hmm. And what they're fearful of is that there'll be a third court-martial <laughs> and that Davis will be condemned again. Yeah. And in fact, what happens is, is in the end, um, he isn't fully rehabilitated until 1906. Mm-hmm. And he is, doesn't come before a court-martial. Special procedures are invoked. He goes before the High Court in France, Court de Cassation, and that is where, ultimately, he is fully exonerated. Yeah, exactly. But uh, there was a kind of a... Mo- I I don't know. People don't really think. People, I don't. I didn't really think. What happened to Dreyfus after the Dreyfus affair? Now he was still in the military, and this is one of the most mind-blowing parts of the book. He's um, he he kind of he 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 remains in the military, and then he's um, mobilized in 1914. Well, actually, he resigns from the military because something worse happened. Oh yes, no, that's right. Yeah, I remember now. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. First, he resigns. He resigns because Picard is elevated to a generalship. And um, all the time that he has been kicked out of the army, counted in his seniority, was poor Dreyfus, who is, um, the time he spends in Devil's Island is not counted mm-hmm. as service. And so he is, um, uh, comes out of this in a very low rank. And it basically is a way of saying to him, this is the end of the road, you, you can't be in the army. Mm-hmm. And he's brokenhearted by this. But he's remobilized during World War One. That's incredible. I mean, you really have to admire the guy. I mean, yeah. you really have to admire him for everything they put him through. And then yeah. he goes and fights for France. I mean, I, well, what goes he does is he, he he works on the fortifications in Paris, and he really really wants to help the the um, the, the war effort. He wants to go out into the front, and they won't mobilize him to go there. But ultimately, so many people have been killed. They do take him up on it, and he actually goes out. In the, in the campaigns, and he is devoted to his men. He knows he's he's uh, one, he's a commander that's not disturbed by the horrors of war because he's already experienced those horrors in, on Neville's Island. Uh-huh. And he makes sure that his family, his women folks, send all his men care packages because he knows from his time in Neville's Island how important it is for morale. Yeah. And he, he manages to survive until 1935. That's incredible. Which on the and he dies on the eve of the popular front. Hmm. So that is an extraordinary testimony to his his resilience, almost superhuman resilience. No, it's a, it's a, it was a, it was very moving to hear that he was he was remobilized and went and fought. I, I uh, yeah, you don't um, I don't use the word hero very often, but that's a pretty impressive thing and pretty close to it after what that guy had been through. Um, so anyway, I wanted to ask you one uh, final thing. It's about a piece that you wrote in um, Foreign Policy uh, explaining the uh, the, um, the continued relevance of the, the Dreyfus oh, yeah. Affair, something that I, I think that our readers will have heard about in the news, and that is um, Sarkozy and the, uh, the burqa business. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, that. 
Well, what I'm what I'm what I'm beginning to think about is I, I was interested in un- unveiling, not using the word unveiling for the burqa. I, I was interested in exploring, um, it, just not not just the good side, the legendary side of the Dreyfusar, but the the more authoritarian and absolutist side of the Dreyfusar. I mean, because of their the horrible struggle that they had against this conspiracy. In the aftermath of the affair, and after 1899, and after the pardon, they become very, very virulent in their campaigns against the army and the church, because they want to literally purge these institutions, which they hold responsible, in some ways, not totally correctly, for the frame-up of Dreyfus. Mm -hmm. And um, this doctrine, which laïcité, this idea that there's a, 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 a real distinction between the secular public state and private conscience is very, very important in French political culture. It's very different from in America, where we see the defense of human rights as being supporting the right of the individual to freedoms of conscience. In France, this Republican notion of laïcité wants to protect the individual from the encroachments of religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, what I what I find so interesting is that, of course, the, the Dreyfus affair is about the horrors of anti-Semitism and should always be remembered as such. But I, I'm arguing at the very end of the book that it is also about this uh, elaboration and extension of this notion of laïcité that has had, at moments, very intolerant um, consequences. And that in the current debate, it's not against as much against Jews, but against the large, unassimilated uh, Islamic minority. And what I find so interesting about the Burqa debate is that uh, there are only 2,000 women in the population of 8 million Muslims who wear the Burqa. And yet the Burqa, the full veil, has become the focus of extraordinary controversy within France. Mm-hmm. And... Sarkozy wants to outlaw it, um, not not just in public institutions like the schools where headscarves are already um, outlawed and are illegal in France, or even in the post office, which is a place where the government is, it's a government building, but literally on the street. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting because it's, it's one of those areas, again, where you see... Um, Strange bedfellows. You see uh, very right-wing National Front people opposing the burqa as a sign of Muslim interference in French political life, and you get from the left and even from some feminist quarters um, uh, horror at the burqa as seen as patriarchal Islamic authority imposing itself on uh, again on women and also on French public life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating point. And I, and I know that the people that I've talked to here in the United States about Sarkozy and the burqa really just have scratched their head a lot. Because here, really what you wear, especially... Is what you wear. what you wear. I mean, that really is nobody's business. I mean, I don't care where you wear it. But so I don't think there's any... And that's what's so terrific about that, that piece in foreign policy is it really puts it into kind of a French historical context where you can kind of understand exactly where Sarkozy is coming from, even if you disagree with him. And, and the kind of... Uh, the kind of residual fear of clericalism, even after in an age where I don't know how religious are people in France. I don't, I don't suspect they're well, very. But... No, but I think what's so interesting is that they took the fears of the Catholic Church yeah. and literally the whole discussion of the veil in the 19th century in, in France is, you know, the horror of taking the veil of yeah. women not having their rights of being shut up in convents, and now they have extended that and superimposed that on. Uh, again, in, in, a, in, a, in a very complicated way, um, on, on Islam. Yeah. And this idea, again, the priest in the 19th century who was you know, forcing the woman to do things she didn't want to do or, quote, brainwashing her. Now it's the radical imam who is imposing himself yeah. on women. Right. <laughs> you see what I mean? So there are all these parallels, and I think it begins to explain what is very difficult for us in an Anglo-American context to understand. There's a very different political culture mm-hmm. that went through very different, different struggles where religion and the Republic have had a very different profile. I mean, in America, we can't imagine the Republic in some sense 
this without um, its defense of religion. Um, but in, in, in fact, the two were often seen as diametrically opposed. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so it's a very, very different world. And, and I think that because we're all in Western society, we think we should all understand each other. But actually, these things are more than subtle differences. They are important differences. Yeah, no, I think that's, exa- I think that's exactly right. And uh, thank you very much for bringing them to the attention of the readers of Foreign Policy and the listeners uh, of this podcast. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk just a little bit about your next project. So uh, our final question, always, on New Books in History is, what are you working on now? Well, I think I may decide to write a history of the Rhine, the river in Hmm. Europe. And I thought I might start with the Visigoths Uh and end with Wagner, the Rheingold, and, of course, with the Second World War. I think it's a terrific project. Yeah, I hope so. I, 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 was, I spent some time on the Rhine myself in a little place called Beaupard. And, um, I, I, I'm, going there, I'm going there in a few weeks' time. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. No, it's beautiful there. It really is very nice. And the people there were, um, they were very nice to me, I have to say that. So. But I hope to be able to do everything from this rich world of uh, music and culture to the bridges, to the vineyards, yep. and to try to sort of trace the civilization. Um, mm-hmm. That is, you know, that extends through Switzerland, Holland, France, and mm-hmm. and Germany. So let's hope that that works out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Ruth, I wanted to say thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. The book is Dreyfus: Politics, Emotion, and the Scandal of the Century. Ruth Harris, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. All right, thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ruth Harris about her new book, Dreyfus: Politics, Emotion, and the Scandal of the Century. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.